overall, I think for us, we knew that from the get-go, if we were going to be taken seriously there, we needed to do this at the highest quality possible and you know, just be very, very thoughtful about how we rolled this out. Um, by the time we got to the ground, you know, there were just so many different perceptions of the house, and we were very lucky to kind of dispel them over the week. But you know, we had folks coming, you know, to the house and being like, "Can we buy psychedelics here?" And like, the WEF would send their like secret police to you know watch over to make sure that there were no drug deals happening like at nighttime for the first few nights. So we would have to you know figure out who they were and like you know talk to them and give them literally the research and statistics and like change their minds within a matter of, you know, five to 10 minutes so that they would, you know, have a peace of mind that this wasn't a place that we were, you know, just trying to distribute drugs. This is, you know, a really serious space that has a lot of potential to heal a large portion of the world's sick. And we're um, dosing devils with knowledge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so th throughout the entire process, you know, we, we knew how how high quality we had to be, how serious we had to be, how careful we had to be, which caused, you know, a lot of a lot of stress and strain in many ways. You know, we the language we could use, the imagery we could use, there are so many rules around, you know, how you do this properly so you don't get shut down by the WEF or the city of Davos. Um, that it's, you know, you're hosting a conference in a country you've never been to, where everyone speaks a different language, where the army is lining the entire street, there's snipers on the ceilings, there's people with guns like on the street hot dogs are like a hundred dollars. You know, it's like insane to organize something there. Hello everyone, and welcome to Field Tripping. Today, we have three amazing humans joining us who recently achieved something spectacular for the psychedelic movement. These three remarkable individuals are Marie Khazan, Maria Velkova, and Maya Albert, who collectively formed the venture capital firm Tabula Rasa. And their spectacular achievement was to take psychedelics to a new level on the global stage with the first ever psychedelic medicine installation at the World Economic Forum in Davos, where they had an incredible lineup of speakers and luminaries, including yours truly, though I'm dubious that the term luminary should apply to me, in the psychedelic industry, connecting with an incredible lineup of speakers and luminaries attending the World Economic Forum. It's great to see you all again. Thank you for joining us today and welcome to Field Tripping. All right, everyone. So the first question I have, uh, and I've discussed it at some to some degree uh, in passing with each of you, but my first question is, it takes a special person to dedicate their lives to building a business in the psychedelic industry. What inspired each of your individual journeys to come about and, and do what you're doing right now? Yeah, thank you so much, Ronan, for having us uh, on the podcast. And it was an absolute, absolute pleasure uh, having you at Dallas as well. I will correct your question a little bit because I do feel that it doesn't really take a special person in any special sense. I think every person and unique individual are special in their own way, but it takes someone who wants to help people to really kind of become more self-aware uh, initially so that we can together become more aware of others in the world we live in. So I think that is achievable, maybe by most people, we'll find out. My personal journey uh, with psychedelics, um, I, my academic backgrounds in uh, pharmacology and bioscience, uh, so I've been intrigued by the human brain and more so by the human mind and how those connect uh, since my early studies. I've always been fascinated by 
how the brain works on a molecular level. And I spent a lot of my life studying science and working in drug development until 2020 when I really wanted to do something different and I really wanted to be closer to innovation and seeing the impact of my work, uh, helping, touching people's lives individually. So I decided to leave the corporate world and the world of big pharma and kind of take my curiosity and, and knowledge and experience and expertise in drug development. Psychedelics actually had a very big transformational impact on my personal life. I don't have any clinical massive traumas, but I think my trauma can relate to a lot of people, kind of uh, immigrant trauma. Uh, originally, I'm from Bulgaria. When I was 10 years old, my family moved to the U.S. and I experienced not belonging. I didn't speak any English and I really felt like I needed to do and achieve certain things to be accepted by society. I achieved a lot in the social system and construct, but I never felt content or like I had found my purpose until uh, one sunny summer, actually in Ibiza, uh, where we're currently, uh, I experienced uh, psychedelics for the first time. And unfortunately, I didn't know about the guided, like, guidance around using the medicine to achieve the best efficacy. But despite the fact, uh, it's still really uh, these medicines helped me find my purpose and passion and combining my professional experience with this transformational healing experience. Um, in early 2020, I started exploring the psychedelics ecosystem and uh, at this time met Marik and Maya, uh, which was one of the most incredible things that has happened in my life and allowed me to apply myself and help uh, the people in this industry uh, in overall. I agree. Each of us are special on our own. But when it comes to entrepreneurship, you do actually have to be, I think, irrational to become an entrepreneur because the odds are so stacked against you in the first place that you have to believe that you can defy you know, most mathematical probabilities to succeed. And then to stack on doing something that is as amazing, uh, but as we'll say still fringe as psychedelics only amplifies that risk. So that's why I say it takes a, a really special person to, to do that. And, and insane. <laughs> that's exactly right. Uh, and I just have one, one deeper question. And then I want to go to Marie and, and, and Maya as well to answer that question. But one of the things that happens is, is people say like, yeah, I had an experience with psychedelics and it's transformative and changed my life. And it's like, okay, cool. And for anybody who's listening, it's like, that can be inspiring, but can you give a little bit more detail about what came up during that experience or those experiences where I was like, oh, okay, now I see the, you know, I've been, I've been carrying the, the weight of, you know, being a, an immigrant from Bulgaria for so long. And now I see it. Can you offer any more details? And the answer, maybe you can't. Sometimes it's just a, an embodied knowing more than a tangible this, 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 but I'm curious to know. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. I can I can provide some color uh, though, and 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 also it, it didn't happen from just one experience. Uh, as I mentioned, it wasn't really like guided in a way with a therapeutic intention. Uh, initially, eventually, I got to that point, yeah. but it was probably a seven year <laughs> journey of of work. And outside of the use of psychedelics, I, I I did the landmark forum. I read many many books. I've met incredible coaches and, and uh, kind of mentors in my life 
Um, so it took many years to, to get to where I am and I'm only barely scratched the surface. But I guess one of the examples that I always give an analogy is like I was taking society's boxes to, to get that acceptance and approval and to be part of like what people view as as successful and, and like an accepted human <laughs> uh, in certain dif- different uh, containers, for example, in the corporate world or academics or whatever. And I was ticking all society's boxes, but I wasn't ever looking inside of me uh, to see what really ignites me and, and what kind of fuels my passion. And these substances allowed me to kind of change my perspective as, as me, a human living in this world and what truly matters to myself. And a lot of people will agree is one thing I realized, you know, I, I couldn't even look in the, or think the thought, I love myself. But if your whole balance, if your internal homeostasis, mind, body, spirit is aligned, then you can really start truly giving back to others and applying yourself as as a human who comes from a healthy and balanced perspective rather than like, oh, I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to do that. And I should do this. I should do that. The intention is really important in the things that you create and and do in the world. Yeah, no, I think that's a really powerful point that I'm not even sure I'm there yet, but uh, to be able to consciously and meaningfully say, I love myself, um, in a meaningful way uh, that actually resonates is something that's hard for still for me. And certainly I imagine for <laughs> many of the 9 billion or so people on the planet, given a lot of the things we deal with and, and the way our society works a lot of the time. What about you, Maya? What's, uh, what's your story and your path to here? Thank you, Ronan. And thanks, thanks for sharing, Maria. It's always nice to check in and talk about our pasts in that way. So about five years ago, my mom came to me and said that she was interested in trying a new approach to dealing with her lifelong struggle with clinical depression. She has been struggling with this for her whole life, but traditional medicines had never really worked. She'd had good, good periods and bad periods. Sometimes it's dark years, sometimes it's dark months, but definitely affected my childhood and our relationship in pretty meaningful ways. And so when she said, that she had heard about LSD as a potential like microdosing or full dose for treatment. I was shocked and, and very happy to hear that she'd be open to something like that. I think she was sort of aware of it before I was. So she started on this journey with psychedelics and actually had a lot of success that she hadn't felt in years and redived into her art, was finding energy and happiness first through microdosing and then finding an underground guide and doing psychedelic assisted therapy and just being present for this journey for her was, was really profound for me. And it meant a lot to the whole family. I had had a long personal history with psychedelics, but hadn't seen the full spectrum of their ability to, to heal in this way. And as soon as I knew that companies were forming, that research was happening and that this whole movement was getting started again, I sort of dropped everything and and decided to dedicate my career to helping bring this healing to to others. And I have a background in project management and operations. And so I met up with Mike a few years ago and we started the psyched conference together. And it's crazy to say how much things have 
grown and exploded and just our third year of psyched uh, was happening in Davos, Switzerland. It's been, it's been a wild ride, but I feel so incredibly fortunate to be contributing to the psychedelic space. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing. How is, how is your mom doing these days? She is doing okay. She is just finishing treatment from cancer. So, you know, yeah, you never know what sorry. life is going to throw at you. Yeah, she's getting getting back to health. And I have to say, it's really it's really wonderful to have psychedelic medicine in your tool belt because there's only so much that the Western model can offer for people who are really looking to work on not only their body, but their mind. And when you're dealing with such insurmountable challenges and pain and these scary numbers that doctors throw at you, you really have to take care of your mind just as much, if not more than your body. And up until, you know, your mom came to you, you had had experiences with psychedelics. What had what had started you on that journey? Was it more recreational? Yes, of course. I was actually quite young when I first experimented, maybe like 15 or 16. Um, and I think I always just had a really deep curiosity for altered states. Maybe wasn't always being very safe. I had, I just, you know, it was one of those teenagers that was pushing against things. But my experiences with psychedelics always enacted some sort of pivotal moment in my life. After the after that time when I was 15 or 16, I decided to leave my school and I went into an accelerated uh, charter school program and I ended up graduating high school a year early because I wanted to move on with my life. And so I was able to enroll in college earlier and it all kind of came from from that moment. So, but it wasn't until I started to read about, read, you know, Michael Pollan's piece in the New Yorker a while back that I started to feel really heard. And I had none of the language before that to understand these experiences that I was having. And I knew I'd found my community. Right. Uh, It's interesting that uh, your psychedelic experiences inspired you to accelerate. Um, your, your journey through school and into university. Whereas, I, I don't know if I shared this, um, but one of the things that I've found going through the process of actually making our documentary was that so many of the things that I struggle with actually came from starting school a year earlier. You know, I'm not a big guy and, uh, and uh, I started grade one a year ahead of myself. So as a small guy in an already small guy situation and, and so many of the things that I've carried through have, have been born out of that. So it's interesting how, you know, it can, to each their own, I suppose, is uh, the ultimate insight that comes out of it. Uh, but thank you. Thank you Absolutely. for sharing. And Marik, uh, over to you. I know a little bit of your background because we had a chance to sit down and, and walk around downtown Toronto. I don't even know how long ago that was, but uh, you shared a little bit of your story, which I found super fascinating. But if you could share with everyone you know, your journey into psychedelic industry and, and doing the work you do both personally and professionally, that'd be awesome. Yeah, definitely. So I've been working in the psychedelic space for around the last four years. And really, you know, my foray into this space, I think a lot of, you know, kind of what's been mentioned during the call today and what's typically mentioned is a lot of folks get into this space after having had, you know, a profound experience with psychedelics that really drives them to understand the meaning of psychedelics in their own life and, you know, the possibility for psychedelics to change the world in one way or another and want to in some way 
you know, tie this into uh, their mission, their purpose, their cause. For myself, I think it, it definitely came from a bit of a different angle. I've been around a lot of different advocacy movements from a pretty young age. I grew up in a strong community myself. I came as a refugee from the Ukraine and grew up in a refugee community um, in uh, upstate New York, then contributed to uh, the disability rights movement, the interfaith movement, and started getting more into kind of counterculture movements around 2015. So built tech for the sex worker rights movement, contributed to the decentralized governance space. And four years ago, I was, you know, looking at other different types of movements that are both combined with kind of this, you know, deep pursuit for human rights, but also a really strong community that is bonded through some sort of adversity. And in the counterculture kind of rights and, you know, counterculture space, people have these oppressed lifestyles in one way or another, whether that's taking psychedelics or participating in sex work, whatever that might be, and are not able to, you know, live their fullest and best lives. And for me, I think that that's, it's been really interesting to watch how that serves as such a great foundation for building community and for building bonds between individuals who may have really different perspectives within an ecosystem, people who are focusing on policy and on healing and on artwork and music and on entrepreneurship and investing, all of a sudden have some sort of reasons to come to the same table and begin talking to one another. Uh, and so I really saw a lot of that in the psychedelic space. And I think today, that's really why I'm here. And I think that that's what we're trying to do with our organization is really keep those lines of communication open. And you know, I, I think a lot of people notice that at Davos, we really try to bring together people who may not necessarily agree, who may have different perspectives, but just trying to lead that conversation about acknowledging the fact that communities are dysfunctional and that's okay. You know, we do have disagreements. We do have moments of immense unity and also, you know, immense uh, conflict between one another. But at the end of the day, you know, we just need to be thinking about what is that table that we want to sit around and moving towards trust with one another, knowing that there will be disagreements along the way, but keeping you know, really focused on that North Star of trust and knowing that we can only really build the best outcome if we're all sitting here together and talking these really complex issues out to build the best possible version of this future. Thank you for sharing that. And and did personal experiences with psychedelics help guide your direction along the way? Um, it sounds like you're on this path from a, a very young age and, and, and maybe early experiences with psychedelics were impactful in that, but... Uh... Yeah, I mean, I definitely had, I got into advocacy before I got into any really mind altering substances, because I was only like 14 or 15 years old. But I did have, you know, uh, many psychedelic experiences throughout my path before I joined the psychedelics ecosystem. Um, And many of them made me very curious. But at the end of the day, like it all, while expanding consciousness and exploring these different worlds brought me into space of awe, um, and oftentimes healing. I don't think that it was really, again, kind of the psychedelics that pushed me into the space. It was more of like an awareness of, yes, psychedelics can do this, but really there's a community here that I want to, you know, help support in whatever way that I can to be able to kind of see this vision through. But of course, knowing, you know, what my internal world might look like under psychedelic states was important for me to have a realization of, you know, how important psychedelics could be for people's healing, for community bonding and just their overall potential to be able to at least try to build some of these pieces of the world that I think most of us want to um, want to see, as well as lead us into certain kind of dystopian elements, um, elements of the future. And I think that that's for me been really important is I think like, 
highlighting what are those dystopian realities that as we you know release psychedelics to the world, as we grow this space um, from every perspective, what are going to be some of those really big challenges that we have to face? Because psychedelics, as we all know, you know, they're not a panacea. They're not all good. They can lead to really great things. They can lead to really harmful things. It really depends on the context and how we interact with them. And, you know, the questions that we need to be asking are in many ways more, you know, anthropological than even economic is, you know, how is culture going to change as a result of access to these compounds? And, how do we then begin to have conversations about the ways we structure society, about the ways we rear children, around the ways we interact with our families, our school systems, et cetera, to be able to develop the best possible relationships with these really powerful compounds as we kind of grow as a society to, um, to a better future? Thank you for sharing that. Um, I, I fundamentally agree that uh, that is probably the more relevant conversation that we need to be having right now. It feels like the whole psychedelics industry is focused on mental health and treating depression and anxiety. And, and certainly that's laudable and important, but it feels like it's only a small subset of the actual conversation that needs to be happening. And, and I'd like to pursue that a little bit further, actually. Like what, what is your thinking around that? I know it's going to be constantly involving, evolving and part of a dialogue, but what, what do you predict that as psychedelics become more ubiquitous in a medical context and, and a cultural context, how, how do you foresee uh, society and our communities changing? Uh, you know, it's one of those things that I've spent a lot of time wrestling with a, a kind of version of that question. And the only place, well, I'll save my answer until afterwards, but uh, I'd be curious to know how you're thinking about that and, and, and what you see coming, coming forward in the short, medium, long term, uh, if you can. For me, I consider I consider the compounds very much like non-specific amplifiers um, that have been used before. Um, like I consider them amplifiers. I think that whatever we have kind of going on internally is amplified, and you know sometimes it's amplified for the purpose of us being able to see it clear and resolve what's there. But oftentimes it's amplified in a way that actually kind of glues us even more to whatever that you know kind of like belief or perspective is. You know, it's why you kind of see like increased rates of conspiratization, um, you know, when folks are kind of entering psychedelic states or uh, smoking cannabis, for instance, um, or just participating in these altered states. But at the same time, also being able to amplify deep trauma, see it from a different perspective and be able to process it and, and work through it. So I think that all of us will become more amplified in one way or another. We will feel more love, feel more pain, experience more trauma, experience more healing of trauma. And, you know, that can, you know, in the proper container, in the proper context, really help individuals to sensitize in a healthy way. But in poor contexts, especially in kind of a globe where our culture is still very much focused on kind of these dynamics of good and evil and really kind of creating villains out of one another, oftentimes as a way to structure our own personal narratives. I think that that's going to be one of the biggest challenges we face is, you know, how do we take the amplification of our personal narratives and restructure them to be able to reduce that um, kind of uh, propensity for the human mind to villainize and to distrust instead of build trust in the process. Uh, so, so yeah, I guess a couple of thoughts there. Yeah. And, and just to add a very quick example, kind of looking at the medical side of things and this as a, not only industry, but as, a, as an ecosystem, having spent a decade in big pharma, there's very clear differences. And Obviously, the medicalization route is only one path uh, to gain uh, psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy and access to these compounds. But unlike pharma, there's so much more collaboration between different types of stakeholders. You know, your, your big pharma map is 
the pharma, the regulators, the payers, the patients, the prescribers. But here we see a lot more activity and involvement of uh, activists, uh, for example, patient activist groups and patient support groups in big in your standard big pharma are like at the bottom of, of the priority list. Um, still important, but you know, when you're mapping your stakeholder map, it's like a very small kind of energy uh, in, into those groups. Here in this space, we're seeing a lot more collaboration, a lot more understanding. Obviously, it's not like immediate and it takes a lot of kind of listening active and and deep listening skills i think that that's important in every aspect of life but here there's a lot more collaboration between stakeholders that you don't see in big pharma for example uh, johns hopkins and maps uh, and a couple of other organizations created a coalition to bring uh, you know leading health economists in the world to like really look into the health economics of rolling these medicines out in in our existing healthcare system and in big pharma like won't name organization names but there are certain big you know pharma associations where you know all the big pharmas are supposed to come together and you know resolve certain challenges or issues or topics and speak about them but it's just so closed off and, and not transparent and you know they're acting from a place of lack rather than abundance. And there's fear like, oh, someone's going to steal that. But I think if we come together and more diverse perspectives coming together are going to build a more holistic and diverse ecosystem in any industry, in any topic that is built for the people in it. And as Marek said before, it's not a, an industry is more like business focused, but an ecosystem includes so many more layers and, and also beneficiaries of that ecosystem. And I see that more so in, in psychedelics um, than, than I have seen in the past in Big Pharma. So the three of you came together to form Tabula Raza uh, Ventures. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about it, what, what your vision is? And, and you know, there's been a few funds that are now uh, focused exclusively or primarily on, on the psychedelic industry. Um, so I would love to know how you think about how you, the work you're doing is, is differentiated from some of the other groups doing similar type stuff. Yeah, so to give you a little bit of the background and story. So I, I started Tabula Rasa around four years ago, back in 2018, out of the Yale School of Management, um, kind of gave you a little bit of background on what I was doing beforehand, but um, was also building a lot of incubators and accelerators professionally. That was kind of uh, what I was contributing to. Upon starting Tabula Rasa, you know, there was this you know, humongous uh, amount of conviction that I felt that, you know, psychedelics was going to really grow as an industry um, within an ecosystem that had been built on these nonprofit and advocacy groups. And so a lot of the mission became, how do we facilitate the smoother transition from a space that was built on these nonprofit and advocacy groups to one that actually had for-profit activity? At the time when I started, there were probably four or five companies in the space. A couple of them had raised you know, tens of millions of dollars, which was really interesting to me. I started reading just more of the research and understanding kind of like how the space might be structured, et cetera. I started meeting a lot of the investors and entrepreneurs, including you know yourself, Ronan, uh, many years back now. I think today, you know, we've we've had the luxury of being able to watch many other kind of funds get started and perform in various ways. And I think that what it's really showed us is that psychedelics are a really important cornerstone of what we want to contribute to going forward. But there's a lot more here um, when it comes to not just uh, you know psychedelic therapeutics, but really kind of this field of preventative care, um, preventative healthcare, and you know how like you know kind of the motto of our Holdco Energia is you know 
can we turn this ill care system into a true healthcare system? Ways that we currently treat patients are basically, you know, symptom management. We don't necessarily address disease before it happens. Uh, you know, we see sick patients and then we help them resolve what they're going through, sometimes effectively, sometimes not so much. Um, and so what does that infrastructure look like for us to be able to build something that really does prioritize preventative care? So we are, you know, a psychedelics first fund, um, at least this first fund. But as we continue going, and even part of this fund is really allocated towards other modalities that are focused on preventative care and being able to um, really build that infrastructure through not just, you know, psychedelic therapies, but through longevity research and neurofeedback, biofeedback, um, gene therapy, um, community. How does community integrate into healthier societies and what does infrastructure for scalable communities look like? And so like looking at all of these different pieces that you might not necessarily even think about as being able to be integrated into our healthcare systems as actually being essential for this future of preventative care and having been the biggest blind spots of the healthcare industry to date. Also, we are talking about uh, community and ecosystems and, and, you know, Tabula Rasa Ventures, our venture arm is only a small piece of, of our, our ecosystem. We're trying to build our organization as an ecosystem. Our holding company is uh, Energy Holdings Incorporated. Tabula Rasa is the venture fund, but we've uh, also built, built in contributions to my and Marika, building outside our media arm, which aims to educate and also to promote kind of that diversity, not just the investors, not just the entrepreneurs, but the advocates, the artists, every single stakeholder that shapes the ecosystem. We also have a nonprofit organization, which, you know, is going to be putting capital towards things that don't have monetary direct ROI, but are really going to move the space forward in terms of diversity, in terms of, you know, the deep research, kind of having that ecosystem. Uh, our goal is to not only support entrepreneurs, but also supporting the entire ecosystem. That's awesome. What do you think is the kind of lowest hanging fruit? I got a lot of people being like, oh, I want to do something in the psychedelic space. I'm very passionate. I'm very committed. You know, what, what should I be thinking about in terms of opportunities? And, and so I don't know if you get that question. I imagine you do quite a bit. Uh, are there any areas where you think there's really low hanging fruit for people with the entrepreneurial ambitions to sink their teeth into? It really depends on the skill set of the of the entrepreneur, um, obviously, with regards to what they build. I think what is, you know, continues to be a large problem is still education, like, you know, being able to create more high quality content that's telling a story that actually helps educate people and not only educate people, you know, through just reading a couple articles, but helps the educational process integrate into the psychedelic assisted therapy process. So knowing that, you know, when you're going to be preparing for psychedelic assisted therapy, there's a lot of support being able to help you with that, knowing that through the journey, there's that support, knowing when you're integrating, there's that support and just allowing for that education to really be um, front and center. I think that the other big piece that there's definitely some solutions and tools for, but like the most common question that we probably get asked is like, where do I access psychedelic assisted therapy? So I think that the infrastructure for being able to access these therapies in legal jurisdictions today is probably, you know, um, some of the most important that can be built. But doing that with a really high quality and, and really innovative 
um, in smart ways, not just, you know, necessarily building a brick and mortar retreat center, but thinking about how can psychedelic assisted therapy in legal jurisdictions, um, psychedelic experiences integrate into already existing infrastructure and scale in that way to be able to provide more individuals access. But also not be destructive in, in that kind of path and goal um, in considering the indigenous, most uh, legal jurisdictions are, you know, in, are uh, countries uh, where, you know, psychedelics have been used for thousands of years. So, you know, not only thinking about providing access and making investor returns, um, but also um, how do you not destroy uh, what's already uh, kind of like built on thousands of years of, of knowledge, um, really taking that into consideration. I've noticed that there are a lot of online stores selling mushrooms and and, and LSD, certainly in Canada and start, certainly percolating up more so in the US. Uh, and I recently came across one where, you know, <laughs> the people who started it put their names and faces on the website. And I'm pretty bullish and I'm pretty ballsy in terms of legal and re- regulatory risk. Uh, and I, that even pushed my my comfort zone. I'm just curious to know your thoughts. Is this, is this a good idea or a terrible idea? Both um, just want to gauge how, how you think about that. There's surprisingly a lot of people who don't even realize that the compounds are still illegal. Like when we saw like the decriminalization, like Pat, like decrim pass in DC and in Denver, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of people came to us and they're like, oh, well, now it's legal across the states, right? Psychedelics are legal in the states. And in Davos, we face that question all the time. So many people thought that it's just actually legal across the US. So Maybe it is ballsiness. Maybe it is just like they don't even realize that these compounds are still illegal. There's just been so little education on like what that term decriminalization even really means, where the policy is, what you can do, what you can't do. Um, I mean, I'm of the perspective that like until we have more harm reduction tools in place, we should definitely slow down with regards to rollout of access. Um, That's just kind of like the general sense that I have. You've been, you know, intersecting with the cannabis space, uh, Ronan, for, you know, some time. Like, we never really had that experience. So we never really saw how in illegal markets, things popping up just when things have been decriminalized, but not legalized, what the repercussions of that have been. Everything that we invest in and everything that, like, we really look at and interact with is completely above ground and FDA approved. So we don't necessarily have that challenge. But we also do a lot of work supporting the harm reduction pieces that are necessary for what's developing in the underground. So I'd actually be curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, how this happened in cannabis and, you know, were there actually, did the government take, you know, significant action to shut down some of these, you know, stores and like, you know, online marketplaces before it was actually legal? Or was it something that just kind of went ignored and created a lot of these kind of micro underground economies? I think your point is right about the misinformation about psychedelics out there, but I think that also goes back to one of the things that was an impetus for me getting involved in the space, which was the zeitgeist has changed, right? The fact that there are so many people who think they're legal means, in fact, on deeper cultural, social, energetic level, we've kind of turned that corner. Now, maybe politics and policy hasn't caught up, but society is changing and it has moved along and eventually politics will have to catch up. What we saw in the cannabis industry, and I think that's exactly what we're seeing in the psychedelics industry, is that small-scale possession and use is just not a priority, at least in Canada and I think in most states across the U.S. Like I know a lot of people who travel with, with LSD and, and psilocybin across the borders, no problem. Don't even think twice about it. And, and truthfully, it probably makes sense, you know most thoughtful people on the conversation agree that the war on drugs has been a pretty catastrophic failure. Certainly putting people who are engaged in, in 
thoughtful, controlled, either therapeutic or, or recreational use in jail is not a, a good use of time resources or energy. And so I think the lack of enforcement, again, I'm speaking from the Canadian context uh, in Canada on this, definitely created the environment that led to the broader shift that happened um, because it just became not an issue that most people and then politicians cared that much about. If you got into large scale um, trafficking, that sometimes got some some scrutiny, but on, on the small scale kind of thoughtful approach, it just doesn't hit the, the category. And, and so I think you're seeing the same thing happen here. I just like everywhere I go, literally everywhere I go, people are talking about their experiences with psychedelics. It doesn't matter if you're talking to rural Ontario farmers or, you know, bankers at Davos. Um, it's very much in a lot of places worldwide. And so I, I liken it and I hate the analogy, but I liken it to Trump voters, which is there's a large, a large minority of people who didn't want to admit that they were going to vote for Donald Trump. But then as soon as they got to stick their head above board and, and check that box, they did. And I think there's a large majority minority of people who are already using psychedelics and they're just slowly but surely coming out of the woodwork and coming out of the psychedelic closet like that. Yeah, it, it happened so fast. <laughs> Two years ago, I was sitting, you know, we were sitting in a cafe and we we're just like whispering. <laughs> and now everyone's talking pretty widely about their experiences. And Maya, do you, do you want to touch on, you know, I know that you were in Oregon recently and have been working closely with Synthesis, you know, Oregon being kind of um, the first state to actually begin to um, legalize in this state by state manner and roll out psychedelic therapy. Have you kind of heard like, uh, conversations, you know, how the culture is changing, et cetera, in, in that space, or have you guys not, you know, had to, had too many conversations about it yet? No, definitely. It's a really, really exciting time here. Um, I'm actually in Oregon right now, close to Ashland and everyone has kind of got their eyes on what's happening. And I think even within the community, there's still a lot of skepticism because this is so new, uh, for us to be legally facilitating psilocybin. It, therapy uh, within the U.S. It's just, it's just never happened before. And even if you look at Ashland, which is a very psychedelic community, there's, you know, there's all the Shakespeare festivals. It's, it's got a very open, hippie, liberal uh, mentality, but there's still like a lot of pause and question about what it'll mean for a bunch of people traveling to Oregon, how the dynamics will change. They don't want their, you know, small town to, to blow up into something that it's not. And yeah, actually, this stage that we're at right now is just submitting applications for licensure uh, to the state to become some of the first places where practitioners can go to get licensed to practice psilocybin therapy. And it's just, there's so many unknowns, I'm sure, on the, on the side of the people that are submitting the applications, but also from the OHA, like, okay, now we have this. What do we, what do, we do? Is it going to take two weeks? Is it going to take six months? Are we actually going to be practicing next spring? Or is it, you know, similar to other government processes where it takes two years longer than the actual stated date? Um, but the the energy is high. There's a lot of excitement uh, as well as trepidation. Well, thank you for sharing that. I, I haven't been very actively involved in what's been going on on the grassroots level in, in Oregon. So uh, Maya, I may have to hit you up afterwards to, to learn a little bit more about what you're seeing. I realized that I used the word ballsy and I realized that may not be totally 
kosher anymore. So if if that is offside, I, I do apologize for that. But speaking of ballsy, uh, you guys recently hosted the Psychedelic Medicine House of Davos, the first ever installation in Davos in conjunction with the World Economic Forum discussing the therapeutic application of psychedelics. Got to say, I imagine the inspiration for this undertaking was kind of like straight out of a stoner movie, which is like, hey, I've got a great idea. Let's take psychedelics to the World Economic Forum. Although I'm sure the actual initiation was much more sober and sophisticated than that. But do tell us, like, how how did this happen? How did it come about? Where, where was the idea generation? Where was like, oh, yes, this is something we can do and should do and, and just take us through that whole story? Because I, I imagine it was full of a lot of ups and many downs and lots more ups and many more downs. We knew for a long time that we wanted to, like, function um, at, like, a high level. Like, since I started Tabula Rasa, it was like, you know, there's there's really something, you know, large and global to build here. Um, and this is more than just kind of another venture firm or more than just another company. Like there's there's a really a new system to be built here that people are beginning to wake up to and, and seeking. And I don't know if the systems that are currently in place are going to be able to necessarily fill that need. And so, you know, what does it look like to build that? But the opportunity of Davos itself, you know, kind of came to us. Um, Maya and I had been working for a couple of years on the Sykes conference at that point. Um, it had grown from you know two thousand viewers to sixty thousand viewers within you know twelve months. Um, this year we hit a million, and you know it's just been growing like crazy. And a few individuals that we had been talking to for a while, and they were like, "Huh, this is super interesting that you guys have you know the you know the incubator, and you guys have worked with so many entrepreneurs and have um, this conference as well. Um, I'd love to you know see if there's there's something here to uh, to bring to Davos and to be able to have that conversation and." I was uh, staying at Maria's house in um, in New York, and we were just you know capital raising out there, just like meeting some folks. We woke up like early in the morning. I think it was like you know seven or eight a.m. our time, and I like just turned to Maria. I'm like, this might be a pretty big call. This guy, I've been like researching him. I'm pretty sure he like runs the entire like undercurrent of like things that happen at Davos, etc. So like, let's just like you know see what this is. And we had a really great call and. You know, it's kind of, you know, brought to us this team that's basically been organizing a lot of the side events at Davos for many years now who brought, you know, um, crypto and cannabis and space, you know, for them, they've had actually psychedelic experiences over the last, you know, 12, uh, 12 months over the last couple of years, and they were highly transformative for them. And so they were looking for a team to be able to kind of bring psychedelics to Davos in this like really high quality and smart way. And uh, we had just like a couple conversations on, you know, values alignment, how we were planning to do this, you know, very kind of the general, just to let, you know, Maya and Maria talk about a lot of the logistics and the ups and downs. But overall, I think for us, we knew that from the get go, if we were going to be taken seriously there, we needed to do this at the highest quality possible and, you know, just be very, very thoughtful about how we rolled this out. Um, By the time we got to the ground, you know, there were just so many different perceptions of the house and we were very lucky to kind of dispel them over the week. But, you know, we had folks coming, you know, to the house and being like, can we buy psychedelics here? And like the WEF would send their like secret police to, you know, watch over to make sure that there were no drug deals happening like at nighttime for the first few nights. So we would have to, you know, figure out who they were and like, you know, talk to them and give them literally the research and statistics and like, change their minds within a matter of, you know, five to 10 minutes so that they would, you know, have a peace of mind that this wasn't a place that we were, you know, just trying to distribute drugs. This is, you know, a really serious space that has a lot of potential to heal a large portion of the world sick. And we're um, dosing devils with knowledge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so th- throughout the entire process, you know, we we knew how 
how high quality we had to be, how serious we had to be, how careful we had to be, which caused, you know, a lot of, a lot of stress and strain in many ways. You know, we, the language we could use, the imagery we could use, there are so many rules around, you know, how you do this properly. So you don't get shut down by the WEF or the city of Davos, um, that it's, you know, you're hosting a conference in a country you've never been to where everyone speaks a different language, where the army is lining the entire street. There's snipers on the ceilings. There's people with guns, like on the street, hot dogs are like a hundred dollars. You know, it's like insane to organize something there. Um, and it does to back to your point, Ronan, I think both Maria and my will attest that I might be the most irrational person that they know. And so, um, you know, maybe like getting us into it, but, um, just want to hand it over to them because they're the ones who handled all the logistics and, you know, most of the ups and downs over this last year as we've organized this. And I know how much of a difficult challenge it's been for, for our entire team to make it through this. Yeah. And, um, I, I mean, hot dogs are a hundred, what, what that leaves for the cost for accommodations and venues, uh, that was, is extremely expensive. Um, so, you know, we, we tried to raise, um, some support and sponsorship, uh, but mostly, uh, you know, it was, uh, kind of funded by, by ourselves. We had to cut costs anywhere, but still be super high quality. Yeah. I, I do want to, <clears throat> I haven't said this yet, but I do want to commend you. I mean, it was a spectacular event, uh, and I knew you guys were putting your all into it. And then when I got there, uh, and I saw the list of all the talks that were going on and how many people you were coordinating, getting in, getting on stage worrying about accommodation for. I, I, it was only at that moment I appreciated the massive nature of this undertaking and, and it was a spectacular event. So I wanted to send my kudos and congratulations to you because it was awesome. And, and you know, I think it was a, a home run from my perspective. And I do want to ask you about how you felt it went, but Maya, I have a feeling you were the one who probably had to deal with the secret police a lot. So how was the experience for you? And and how was how how was it dealing with the secret? I didn't know that. That that was news to me. Um, so I'm I'm glad I didn't do anything out of turn. That's for sure. We had a really good relationship with our venue owners, who really helped us through navigating some of those conversations and moments, and helped us know what to look for. But yeah, it was really interesting to have people sort of pull us aside and ask where they could sample product um, in the house, and it's like that misconception. But I think the pinnacle of that experience for me was when the house was as packed as it had been all week, which was for Amanda Fielding and Deepak Chopra's keynote. And um, I'm in the back and I see on the, the security footage that there are firemen at the front door. And so I run upstairs and um, some of our security didn't speak English, so it was a little bit hard to communicate but I understood that they were fire marshals and I don't know if someone hadn't gotten let in because we were way over capacity and had sort of like called an alarm on us just to, just to slight us. I'm not sure, but that was, that was definitely a moment of tension because there were, I don't know, 250 people packed into a small room downstairs. And I was trying to be a bodyguard and block these, these gentlemen from coming downstairs and seeing seeing how far over capacity we went and it was resolved fortunately but it was in german so i didn't i didn't know how it was resolved <laughs> <laughs> what about you maria what were, what were the highlights um for, for you and and also what were the lowlights like what what would you take assuming i'm assuming you you're going to have the the gall and ambition to try and do this again so what what are you taking forward uh, into the next one on that assumption 
Yeah, I'll say like uh, mine super quickly, but um, the highlights, I mean, obviously everything, um, but especially I was especially touched that from diplomats and politicians down to the venue staff, people who, you know, probably never heard about psychedelics. Each of each each of those individuals was so intrigued and interested and and really wanted to learn more and they were in awe like watching watching all the presentations and not realizing how far we have come on on each side you know on on, on regulatory advocacy on the scientific the uh, research and development side the clinical side um and how many patients have been helped uh with this um so yeah just seeing the variety of you know different kind of people from different backgrounds from different countries with different kind of like social statuses um were were absolutely in awe and and that really really touched me personally for sure yeah i think the like starting with the low lights and then the highlights i think the, like low lights and the difficult things when we when we were actually there and on the ground i think you know maria and maya did such an incredible job of being just super detail oriented and taking care of the heavy lifting beforehand that things went pretty smoothly like there were definitely you know ups and downs and things that like you know definitely like shook a little bit but overall it was like very very streamlined and good i think that really just kind of the stresses that we faced in you know kind of the months and weeks um coming up to it were just very difficult especially when it came to, to like the financial component, you know, like the economy being down, you know, sponsors in psychedelics, just, you know, backing out, like we had half a dozen teams, like psychedelic companies that said yes, and like shook our hands and gave us verbal commitments that they would be coming in and sponsoring. And then, you know, just backed out. So there were a lot of kind of, you know, those moments of like, how the hell are we going to do this? You know, like we, We've already put down, you know, deposits on this and that, but we don't have enough to cover, you know, the lodging or we don't have enough for this, et cetera. Like it was, you know, uh, it was just very difficult to, to think through like how we were going to be able to actually finance it and where we were going to find the time and support to pull off like everything that needed to happen. Um, it, I, like it, it got moved, you know, for people who are watching this in the future, you know, this was kind of the first spring that Davos happened. It's typically in January, but because there was a COVID spike, it got moved to spring and you know, for us, that really saved the event in many ways. Um, there's no way I think that we would have been able to do what we were able to do at that level. We would have definitely done something and, you know, kind of like filled in the pieces. But to be able to do it at the level we did it at, it really did have to be moved, um, you know, from, from January to spring and, you know, created this incredible vibe where people were, you know, coming together um, in warm weather uh, for the first time in Davos and, you know, connecting in this way um, with Davos nature um, as well. And, you know, taking kind of the lift up the mountains and you know it was just such a yeah it was like a you know spring slash summer of love in davos you know and the first time that psychedelics were able to to get there so you know i think we were really happy with that i think um a couple of the highlights for me were we got to um sit with a group of some of the biggest latin american leaders um for with uh, like u.s companies and organizations and provide them with just education around psychedelic therapeutics and you know, there was a mother there who was talking about her child, you know, really struggling with mental health and, you know, who even began to cry. And then we were all tearing up. And, you know, there was just like moments like that that were just really beautiful, people being vulnerable and, um, you know, sharing with us and allowing to, you know, just um, allowing themselves to be open to psychedelic therapeutics. Um, for myself as well, I got invited kind of just like 
it, it, in the week before, just somehow something happened where I got invited to like the actual security zone of the WEF and um, got like full clearance to go into more of the formal WEF programming into the House of Ukraine and talk about um, MDMA-assisted therapy for for refugee populations that are coming from um, Ukraine and that region right now. And so for me, it was like just a really beautiful, you know, full circle moment and, you know, just kind of coming as a refugee from the Ukraine um, in the early 90s and like having gone through that experience and knowing kind of the generations of, of trauma that, you know, my parents and grandparents and great grandparents also all having been refugees in different time periods, like having experienced, it was just like beautiful to be able to start that conversation. And I think like looking towards next year with the lowlights, with the highlights, you know, we're definitely going to do something. I think, you know, our priority for this year was being just, you know, as high quality as possible, getting people's attention, making sure that they take us seriously. I think as we continue to do this year over year, the goal is to really, you know, begin to talk with folks and begin to discuss, you know, tangibles of how do we actually roll this out as therapy to the globe? How do we work with these political leaders and nation states to actually reschedule psychedelics and make it more accessible, both regards to treatment, as well as with regards to just doing the research on these compounds and molecules. And um, yeah, we're hoping that over the next decade, we can really make a pretty significant push in, in like kind of the global arena on making sure that people all over the world, not just in the US or Canada or parts of Europe, have access to, you know, these transformative therapies. I think that's an amazing place to wind up the conversation. It brought it together nicely. But before we do that, you did record the entire event and, and you are turning it into a documentary. So could you share details about that so anyone who is listening can can tap in, tune in and, and watch some of the outputs of, of this amazing event? Yeah, so... Um... All of the content will be streamed on Altered, all of this, uh, like, uh, talks um, that were there. And we'll make sure to provide you with the link, Ronan, to put um, in this podcast so that people can check it out there. The documentary is one where we are really trying to think about how do we structure this in the best way possible. We have all the footage. We're working with, you know, our crew. We're going to be creating kind of a 22-minute piece um, with the footage that we collected. Now, what happens with that 22-minute piece, we're still thinking through. Um, it might be used as kind of just releasing it on its own and showing people kind of what happened, the small snippet of what took place. What's more likely is we're really going to use it to be able to build out um, just a, a much larger kind of uh, work uh, on kind of the psychedelic space and highlighting a little bit more than just what we've been seeing in a lot of the documentaries, which is people's personal experiences and um, kind of the either the therapeutic benefits or the research that's happening in the space, and really trying to extend to more of the societal pieces. So, um, you know, going going to different parts of the world and like detailing, you know, w- what are these innovative ways that psychedelics are being used on everything from political reconciliation to community building um, to healing, et cetera, um, and how it's being done in these like strange and quirky little spaces like, you know, the first ever psychedelics house of Davos being one of those examples of like this humongous milestone for this space. So, you know, my grand vision is that it becomes a musical documentary and we can have musical numbers. Uh, cause I think that that's the only way to do a proper psychedelics documentary, but we'll see in time and with enough funding, hopefully it'll happen. 
I will happily lend my support to that because that's the best idea I've heard in a long time. So that sounds yeah. amazing. <laughs> yeah. On that note, I'm going to thank all three of you uh, for joining. I'm going to thank you all also for for the putting together the Psychedelic Medicine House of Davos. I really do think it's going to, in five years or 10 years, we're going to look back and, and point to that as one of the pivotal events in the evolution of whatever's coming uh, in the psychedelic space. So congratulations on that. Thank you for including me to be a part part of that and uh, looking forward to continuing to support all your efforts and uh, wishing you the best of luck as you think about the next one and, and moving forward and, and certainly enjoy your time in Ibiza. I imagine it is very well deserved, uh, although Maya, you're, you're back at work in Oregon right now. So keep up the good work because what, whatever's going over there is is also incredibly important to what's happening right now in, in the world. Yeah, definitely running. Thank you so much, man. Thank we really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Maybe you know this, maybe you didn't, but I always assumed that the Summer of Love in 1967 was a cultural phenomenon that occurred organically and that the billing, the Summer of Love, was something that was applied retroactively. But that isn't quite exactly what happened. While certainly the pilgrimage to the Haight-Ashbury was happening organically, the Summer of Love actually came to life through a much more conscious and calculated way. This even included the counterculture anthem, San Francisco, Wear Flowers in Your Hair, which was used essentially as an advertisement through the, quote, commercial minds of Lou Adler and John Phillips to attract people to the city. Why am I telling you this? Well, because one of the conversations that seemed to come up quite frequently at the Psychedelic Medicine House of Davos this year was just how uncomfortable certain people were in attending the event in large part because the World Economic Forum stood contrary to many of the fundamental beliefs and values that such people believed in, and which are also in certain ways anathema to what much of the modern psychedelic movement stands for. That's exactly why what Merrick, Maria, and Maya pulled off was that much more impressive and meaningful. Not only did the Psychedelic House of Medicine launch psychedelics onto a new level at the global stage, it actually brought together in a single community with open and free and respectful dialogue, people from very opposing perspectives. And the amazing thing was that just as they had hoped would happen, these voices all got along in a single song. Certainly there were different voices singing and the harmony went off key at times, but overall it seemed to me that a new psychedelic anthem may have been birthed in Davos this year, at least energetically, if not musically. Kudos again to the Tubula Rasa team for such a wonderful accomplishment. As a quick reminder, please follow, rate, and review our podcast and sign up for our newsletter at fieldtripping.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Field Tripping. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious, breathe properly, and remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. Field Tripping is created by Ronan Levy. Our producer is Conrad Page and associate producers are Macy Baker and Alex Sherman. Special thanks to our production partner, Quill, and of course, many thanks to Merrick, Maria, and Maya for joining us today. To learn more about Tabula Rasa and all the great work they're doing, visit tabularasa.ventures.